This one is so exciting. Look at all of these people. I really, I can't say it often enough. As you, that really, look at everybody. This is the best moment because there's, there's always oh, a bunch of people on the screen that I know and then all the people that I don't yet know. And that's, oh, it's so exciting. There are more people coming. Brahmanis in Mexico. You know, if you want to be writing in the chat right, right now, where you, especially if you're outside the United States, write in the chat where you are. It's so exciting to know that people. Brahmanis in Mexico, I know that. Let's see. To have the chat on to see it. Okay. Istanbul, Quebec, Montreal, Brussels, Mexico, Vancouver, Memphis, Whitestone, Virginia, Toronto, Brazil, Philadelphia. That's so exciting. You know, the um, in airplane uh, um, uh, magazines in the days when airplanes had magazines and people traveled on them, they would show you the map of where that airplane, where that airplane company had service to. And it looks like a hub city. And then it looks like all these arcs going to the different cities, the flight route of that airline. And I used to love to read that because it reminded me of the descriptions of when the Buddha said to uh, monks that he had trained over some period of time, go forth, O monks, and teach the Holy Dharma in the idiom of the people. And monks went north and east and west. And, uh, and I have this mental picture of monks walking on all of those little arcs going to different places. And since they were walking, they couldn't walk that far that fast. And when they got to the uh, to the Pacific Ocean, they couldn't just walk to Japan. They had to get over on a boat. And I have all these little pictures in my mind of monks walking and uh, rowing themselves across to Japan. It says Buddha Dharma brought the Dharma to Japan. And I imagine that here's Buddha Dharma and his little boat bringing his Dharma to Japan. And now we sit in, in I am in Marin County, California, and I'm talking and it's going to Brazil and Brussels and Mexico. And I find that so exciting that it doesn't have to take years and decades and centuries for the Dharma to spread, but we can be talking to each other in real time. I am just having my usual fit of enthusiasm of <laughs> seeing that there are so many people out here. Oh, look at Hamsa has that beautiful icon on her or his desk. I always think it's also very gracious of people to invite the, us all into their homes. You know, it's a big deal to invite people. And dear old Marty, I haven't seen you in so long. Happy to see you, dear. Well, here we are. We were here. We've been here. I love that part. I always get, well, here, here I'm going to explain why it's of particular significance today, my, my enthusiasm at seeing you all. 
I uh, just decided I'm, I am meant to decide every week and I meet with Carlita just before we go live with you. And I say, okay, the name of the uh, talk today, although I've already said so many times, the talk is always the same. How are we going to do this life inevitably complicated in a way that's gratifying and significant and not creating suffering for ourselves or for others? That's the name of the talk every week but it would be boring to have a catalog that said the same name of the talk every week it's just described disguised every week but that is the talk every week it's the only talk how are we going to do this it's very complicated life so that's the talk so today i I was putting together all these bits and pieces of things i wanted to talk to you about and uh, then two things happened i realized first of all how i was going to do it all in one morning I had so much stuff piled up here I thought oh I'm back next week so then I got really relaxed about that whatever I don't say I can say next week okay but there's no end it's always the same Dharma talk doesn't matter who's here saying it it's the same topic but the topic is really I talk to my friends and it's the answer to the question what if your own equanimity is flagging and what if you don't feel you know it's all right, and I've got a hold on this. And uh, one of my friends that I talked to yesterday said this great line. She said, wait, I have to find it exactly. She's an old woman, she's like myself, she's uh, 85. And uh, uh, she lives on the other side of the country. and We've known each other for a long time. And I said, uh, uh, you know, a regular line, like, how are you, Pat? And she said, I've learned to take things as they are. So I said, you know, that's a tremendously significant thing. (laughs) That's the whole thing, as a matter of fact. I've learned to take things as they are. This is the way they are. I can't do anything about it. The only thing I could do, I can do positive things to make change. But I can't change how they already are. This present is here. And if I, that's really the significant move, if you think about it. If I stay stuck here, the news is terrible. The current events is terrible. And if I stay here and push away at it, then I can't move past it. If I say to myself, wait a minute, I'll talk to my friends. That's where that phrase comes in. And I talked to my friend Pat yesterday. She said, I've learned to take things the way they are. I said, that's it. That's the whole thing. And sometimes you can't do it without somebody else reminding you, hey, this is what's happening now. Because what, what's hidden in that reminder, this is what's happening now, is that now can't be different. Now is now. Because of everything that's ever happened in the whole world, in the whole of history, in yesterday's news, everything has added up to now. So if we meet now with this can't be, I, I can't do it, it's too terrible, the news is too terrible, the climate is failing, the this is that, the that is that. It is. Now what? We can, uh, the best description, the best um, uh, a definition I heard, I think ever, of equanimity, I heard from Gil Fronsdahl, whose definition of equanimity is, hmm, This is what's happening. Let's see what happens next. I love that. Let's see what's happened next. 
that reminds me that there's going to be a next. Because when I have one of my feelings about, uh-oh, the politics is too terrible, and the climate is too terrible, and the, this is too terrible, and the pandemic is too terrible, then it has precluded the idea that there's a next that might be better. Who knows? I don't know what's going to happen next. But if I fight with this, I can't possibly see over the horizon to what might be next. So I love that idea of let's see what happens next. And in order to see what happens next, I have to let the my own mind settle down a little bit so I can remember what else I know. And I can find out what everybody else knows that I might learn from. It's like an, uh, an eruption of confusion in the mind. Really, equanimity gets destroyed by conf any kind of confusion in the mind. Then you don't know what's happening now or what could happen next. I remember learning, I, I actually looked up this morning what year it must have been. But I met an old friend, uh, uh, for a person I'd known years ago, decades ago in school. And I met him for lunch and he brought along a friend of his. And uh, she was very much involved in um, the, the political situation with the United States and Nicaragua. And the Sandinistas and the Somoza government and uh, uh, I looked up this morning what decade that was in because I'm trying to think how long it was. And it was 1979 that we, we met. We just met for lunch. And what the significance of that meeting is things were not going well at that point for people who had the same kinds of uh, political ideas as I did. And for this person who had those was also fighting for that particular working for that particular political outcome. And I said, what keeps you from getting really distraught when things are revealed as being so not what you want them to be? And it gets worse and worse. So how do you keep going? And she thought very briefly, but she thought about it. And I, I, I don't know, maybe I thought she was going to say some really amazing inside and she said well i talked to my friends and i thought really that's about it what we do we talk to our friends we reach out we talk to our friends we find out that in thinking that there's hope or what's the matter with thinking that there's hope and that thinking that there's hope that there's another possibility let's see what happens next it really has to happen before we figure out what to do next and I thought to myself, that's it. We are the we are the worldwide Sangha. I also remembered did I say that was nineteen seventy nine? That's forty years ago when this person told me I talked to my friends. And I thought and I remembered that line and, and the fact that I expected something else, which gave me a lot of hope. And reminds me as I say that to you that the Buddha, uh, uh, that uh, the Buddha's chief aide to him said uh, to him, uh, Ananda said to the Buddha, "Is it true? Um, is it true that our good friends 
are half of the holy life. And the Buddha is said to have said, no, it's not true, Ananda. Good friends are the whole of the holy life. And I like that very much. And a few years ago, our friend and teacher, Larry Yang, wrote a book called um, Awakening Together. The Spiritual Practice of Inclusivity and Community by learning to live with each other and talk to each other in small community and larger communities and larger and larger communities. It certainly allows me to think outside of my particular fatigued mind and think the mind of the world is full of very smart people who really want the world to continue. Why don't I just not feel like I have to solve every problem myself? I think there must be people like myself. But the mind has to calm down enough to think there must be people like myself. Really what I want to talk about today, and where I started three or four days ago to outline what I was going to talk about, that I wanted to talk about the Brahma Viharas, wanted to talk about uh, loving kindness and compassion and uh, empathic joy and equanimity who that are said to be the divine abodes of the mind that the mind that can abide in equanimity is the mind that can express itself with altruistic joy and with compassion and with goodwill towards everybody and it's really, in a way, my favorite teaching. But I thought to myself, oh, then I have to teach this before that, and that before that, and that before that. But then I realized, well, we're back next week. So I have plenty of time to do the Four Noble Truth, the, the Four Divine Abodes, and lead up to it by talking about equanimity today. I talked to my friends. I wonder how many people here have experience with the Meta Retreat. Have experience with the Meta Retreat? Let's just look ahead. So maybe a half or a third of this screen, probably other screens if I look. Yeah. So there you go. Meta practice, in a way, is really a um, another form of mindfulness practice. One of the things that I tell my friends is I wanted my lifetime to disabuse people of the idea that there is mindfulness practice and metta practice. I think it's all metta practice. It's all goodwill. I notice that my friend Jack these days is calling uh, metta practice, uh, mindfulness practice, loving attention. Bring your loving attention to this. Bring your loving attention to that. That meeting each moment as a friend, meeting each experience as a friend, is bringing the spirit of warmth and the spirit of confidence and the spirit of goodwill into every moment of experience. It's also doing yourself a favor by seeing clearly in that experience. Even in that, even in the experience of distress, 
I think maybe I'll play a piece of a um, chant right now for you. Um, we have the we have the possibility of uh, we have two hours, so we can listen to the chant once and maybe a second time. But I think it'd be a good thing to start with and maybe um, recoup and do again uh, an hour from now as a meditation. This is nine minutes when we do it. And um, you'll hear someone singing a chant of metta. She's singing it in, in metta, by the way. The word metta means um, loving attention, really kind attention. It comes from the Pali root of the word friend. Meeting every moment is a friend and every experience is a friend. So even um, yesterday as I thought, oh, I was going to talk about equanimity tomorrow, but I don't feel equanimous. The, 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 the news is upsetting and um, the, the news is upsetting full stop. <laughs> Don't need more than that. The news is upsetting. Other things are upsetting. Uh, there are things in my family, things in your family. We've all got so much stuff. And all of a sudden, I think to myself something that I know to be true, that underneath all that stuff, that uh, it's really possible to have peace of mind, that there is a place of wisdom that's underneath all that that says this is happening because it can't be otherwise. And the future will depend on what I do and what everybody else does. And let's just look around and see what to do. So then I thought about this particular chant of metta. The metta chant that you're about to hear is um, a compilation of metta chants that people say to themselves on metta retreats and at home when they're not on retreat. And it's a repetition of phrases wishing well for other people. And if you've never heard this before, I'm really happy for you because it's beautiful. Um, the woman, uh, the, the, you can buy, a, by the way, you can buy a, a, a CD of it. You probably can download it off the internet. It's called The Chant of Metta. And the person singing is Umi Oi. And if you do, if you Google the chant of metta, you'll find it. But don't Google now. I'm going to play it for you now. And she will, you'll hear her singing in the background. And you'll hear the English translation in the foreground. And I'd like to invite you, as you hear her say, may I be free of enmity and danger. Say to yourself, may I be free of enmity and danger in your own mind. Quietly do it as a meditation. May my parents and teachers and friends be free of enmity and danger. You say that also in your mind. So sit in a way that's comfortable and alert. And it's nine minutes and I'll do it together with you.
from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all beings be free from suffering. May whatever they have gained not be lost. All beings are owners of their karma. In the eastern direction, in the western direction, in the northern direction, in the southern direction, in the southeast direction, in the northwest direction. In the northeast direction, in the southwest direction, in the direction below, in the direction above. May all beings, all breathing things, all creatures, all individuals. All females, all males, all noble ones, all worldlings, all deities, all humans, all those in the four woeful planes. From enmity and danger, be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all beings be free from suffering. May whatever they have gained not be lost. All beings are owners of their karma. As far as the highest plane of existence, to as far down as the lowest plane, in the entire universe, whatever beings that move on Earth, may they be free from mental suffering and enmity. May they be free from physical suffering and danger. As far as the highest plane of existence, to as far down as the lowest plane, in the entire universe, whatever beings that move on water. May they be free from mental suffering and enmity. May they be free from physical suffering and danger. As far as the highest plane of existence, to as far down as the lowest plane, 
in the entire universe. Whatever beings that move in air, may they be free from mental suffering and enmity. May they be free from physical suffering and danger. When you want to open your eyes and look around at the people who are with you, and perhaps wish for them, may you be free of enmity and danger. I think about some of the words of that chant, but resonates most with me is may I be free of enmity and you and everyone be free of enmity and danger. So we'll talk about that one for a little bit. I also want to talk about all beings are heir to their own karma. What does that mean? I wonder what your experience is of just listening to that for the nine or ten minutes that it took and wishing it for yourself and other people. Perhaps we'll talk about that uh, 
in a little while when we have some time for us to be talking back and forth, but I'll talk a little bit more now. I'll show you some of the things that I've been reading. I, I notice even that my voice slowed down from listening to that. I think I told uh, Carlita that I wanted to call this particular uh, Dharma talk, Think Again. I don't know what we ended up calling it. Think Again. I would call it, what did we end up calling it, Carlita? Yeah, let me go back to my notes here. Uh, we ended up with supporting equanimity. I talked to my friends. Supporting equanimity. I talked to my friends. Okay, that's good. That's a fine. the The title of it doesn't matter. But I I wanted to say think again because I've, I've just read a book called Think Again, which you may have seen. It's on the bestseller list. Uh, it's by Adam Grant, and it's got, okay, and I'm almost finished with it, but I'm very excited about it. Uh, Adam Grant makes a captivating argument that if we have the humility and curiosity to reconsider our beliefs, we can always reinvent ourselves. That's what somebody said. How to build the intellectual and emotional muscle we need to stay curious enough about the world to actually change it. Brene Brown, who is a very famous uh, person in the coaching world, said, I've never felt so helpful about what I don't know. So I, I'll just tell you a few things that I read in here that really changed my mind. The, the, the research that he starts with, which really lifted me up, he talked about um, all the research that's been done about uh, people who take a test. We've all taken a test for something or other where the answers are short answer tests or uh, multiple choice tests and you finish the whole test and you come and you've done the 100 questions you find that you have 15 minutes left to spare and you think, oh, I'll just go back and check over my answers. And a whole considerable number of people who say, no, 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 your first thought in a multiple choice, you know, your first thought is probably the right thought. That's the one you remembered. How many people think that you know, the first thought is probably the right thought? And then you go back second, second guessing yourself well, maybe you shouldn't have done that. So they did, there's been a vast amount of sociological research about that. It turns out that in those people who had enough time on a multiple choice test to go back and check it and changed answers, in three quarters of the times that they changed the question, the answers, they changed from wrong to right. That the idea that that was my first thought, that must be, you know, what it was on the top of my mind. It must have been what they said. But if you think it over, and I just like that so much. I've been telling people for years that the um, an acronym for what we're doing in teaching is TIO, thinking it over, and maybe coming out with a new idea, and that the first idea might not have been such a great idea. You think it over, and 
So to be able to think something over and think, and he talks a lot, uh, uh, particularly about uh, people uh, who people who are working with um, people who don't want to get vaccinated, communities of people who are not wanting to get vaccinated. And he said the way of having a conversation, it is, it's, you know, it's, it's very highly researched, is not to attack with facts, but to explore what ideas that other person has about why vaccination might not be good for you. And to say things back like, well, I understand a lot of people have that idea. A lot of people are concerned about that. Not make people feel humiliated. Well, how could you possibly believe that? Uh, on Seinfeld, George Costanza famously said, it's not a lie if you believe it. And he's saying, I might add that it doesn't become the truth just because you believe it. It's a sign of wisdom to avoid believing every thought that enters your mind. Isn't it interesting? It's actually such a, that, that piece comes up so much in Dharma teaching that, uh, that you have a thought about yourself or somebody else or, but think again, that might not be the best thought. You know, that just, it's just what came out. It's a mark of emotional intelligence, says Adam Grant, uh, to avoid internalizing every feel, every feeling that enters your heart. You know, you have a feeling about yourself, oh, that was a stupid thing to do. You know, it might be a moment of dismay at something, but you don't have to believe it that it was stupid. Just, wow, look what I just did. Okay, now I'll do something else. He said, if being wrong repeatedly leads us to the right answer, the experience of being wrong and being found to be wrong could be a joyful experience. That, that He said, it, people most want to work with congenial people who don't make waves, especially in corporate settings. You want to work with a team that's not contentious. And he said, that's not so good. This goes on to say that if you have somebody, if you if you have people who are disrespectful, of course, it makes a bad uh, tension. But somebody who says, you know what, I think that you're mistaken in that second step. I'd like to show it to you. And if you have the emotional strength to say, oh, okay, show me what you're thinking. That teams that work and hope that they will uh, criticize each other. Uh, I remember someone once saying to me, criticism is not lethal. Criticism is just criticism, just saying I have a different view. And many people take such umbrage of criticizing. Motivational interview, interviewing, this is motivating through interviewing. Uh, oh, this had some very good story in it. This is about um, people working with uh, communities in uh, Quebec that were hesitant about getting the vaccine. Uh, uh, because they had all kinds of thoughts about why vaccination is not good. Uh, and he tells a story 
of Marie-Hélène Etienne, who had been through, uh, who had had a baby four months early, three months early, and the baby weighed two pounds and is now getting left, let out of the hospital at uh, five months, and he's old, big enough and strong enough to go out, but he's not vaccinated. And uh, her mother, the mother, had uh, refused vaccination for her older children as well. And the doctors had always gotten annoyed with her. And she she said she felt she was being attacked as if the doctors were accusing me of wanting my kids to get sick, as if I were a bad mother. And tiny Toby was finally cleared to leave after five months in the hospital. And he was still extremely vulnerable. The nurses knew it was their last chance to have him vaccinated, so they called in a vaccine whisperer, a local doctor with a radical approach for helping young parents rethink their resistance to immunization. He didn't preach to parents or prosecute them. He didn't get political. He put on his scientist hat and interviewed them. Two pages. and interviewed them. Um, the mother told him, um, he told the mother he was afraid of my, what might happen to Toby if Toby got the measles. That was, it was some years ago in Canada, in Eastern Canada, where there was a measles epidemic. And for over an hour, he asked her open-ended questions about how she had reached the decision not to vaccinate his ch her children. He listened carefully to her answers, acknowledging that the world is full of people and the world is full of confusing information about vaccine safety. At the end of the discussion, our, he reminded the mother that she was free to choose whether or not to immunize, and he trusted her ability and her intentions. Before the mother left the hospital with the child, she had the baby vaccinated. A key turning point, she recalls, was when Arnaud told me that whether or not I chose to vaccinate, he respected my decision as someone who wanted the best for my kids. Just that sentence, to me, it was worth everything in the whole world. And it goes on, the whole rest of this is not to insult, not to barrage people with facts. And I thought to myself, that's so hard to do. Think about it for yourself. I mean, get into a political discussion, if you get into a political discussion these days, or if you get into a vaccine discussion. I got into a vaccine discussion accidentally. It, it, I, I didn't think I did badly about it, but I, uh, I was at a hospital clinic uh, some months ago doing something, I can't remember, but I was in a waiting room and uh, sitting next to a uh, or uh, sitting six feet away from a woman. And we got into a conversation and uh, somebody else who was there said they'd got, just gotten vaccinated. And I said, I had two. And she said, I'm not doing that yet. I'm not sure about it. And we had some kind of a conversation, but uh, we didn't alienate each other. I don't remember what I said. I don't think it would have been as good as what this person said. But at the end, she said, you know, I have to look into that a little more. I'll talk to my husband about it. And it's so hard 
not to run in with a barrage of facts and not to run in, I'm sure you've had that experience as well. And more than that, not to think ill of the person who has the other view, because that I definitely have trouble with, with, uh, with my cousins who vote other than the way I do. Uh, I'm, I'm well behaved and I'm loving and I'm cordial because I love them. And they've always been kind with me, and they were certainly very kind with me throughout the whole time of my husband's illness. And I, I love them, so they have other political views. And it's not annoying to me that they have those views. But if I were in, uh, but I avoid political discussions with them because I don't want to, it's not germane to the fact that I love them. If, however, I met somebody else, I don't know if I would do it very well. And I've been thinking about that a lot. I think I might not do it well because I'm afraid that people don't see it the way I do. And uh, when I get frightened, it makes a storm in my mind and I can't see well. And then I actually start not liking the person. And so that line about may I be free of enmity and danger is really like the most important line that there is. Yeah, by the way, was that new to you, those particular lines? We don't actually use them anymore. Uh, those are the lines that I learned in 1945. No, 1945, I'm not that old. I, I was alive in 1945. In 1985, when Sharon taught me Metta, I was born in 1936, actually, but I was not practicing on retreats in 1945. Um, Sharon taught me, may I be free from danger, may I have mental happiness, may I have physical happiness, may I have ease of well-being, which was close to what we just heard in the original Pali, but I think it leaves out an important word that it took me a, a, a decade at least to figure out for myself that may I, may I be free from danger doesn't mean may nobody come after me, may I not have any adversaries, may I not get attacked. It means may I be free of enmity and the danger that it would present to me if I had it, that would be it. If I May I be free of enmity and the danger I have of being confused by it. Because as soon as enmity arises and I don't like it or her or him or they, then my mind is already divided into parts and it's already kicked up a storm of dust so I can't see clearly. It's really, um, it's really the ultimate line. It's really the important line. May I be free of enmity? And I think about that all the time. Uh, I tell people that the whole of my practice these days is being you know, not not when I'm on the zafu necessarily, where I might be doing praises of blessings for my friends and for people who I know are in some particular situation. But when I'm going about my day, I'm really practicing in an ongoing way, being aware of the presence or absence of enmity in my mind. As soon as my mind says, Ugh, I don't like this, or I don't like her, or as soon as my mind cringes. You know, do you know what I mean when I say your mind cringes? You can't stand to hear something. 
It's not a good feeling, is it? That mind cringe. That mind cringe means I have just kicked up a dust storm in my mind and I can't really see. So before I say anything, I should wait for my mind to settle down. Then I should say something, maybe. I have to not say. But I am very alert to the arising of enmity because I think that it makes the world different, separate from me. And it cuts off all possibility of feeling connected to anybody. That's the most important sentence I said so far this morning. That's the most important sentence. Too bad I didn't write it down. But the minute that I make something other than myself, I have split the world into me and the people I like or the ideas that I like or don't like. And it means I can't see clearly in this moment. And if my intention is to be able to see clearly in this moment, I would like to be able to say and feel what the gist of that whole chant is. May I and may my teachers and may my friends and my relatives and my parents and everybody who lives near me and everybody who lives all over the world and in the south and the north and the east and the west and may they all have the end of suffering. That's the mind I'd like to have because that's the mind that's not cringing. It's not in a defensive, when you think about it, it's the most undefensive position you can think of. And that's the gist of that whole thing. When we listen to it again the second time, which I hope we'll have time to listen to, yes, we have time to listen to, then I, I, I want you to really listen to those lines because it, it really seriously says omitting none May I be free of enmity and may everyone else be. If the world were free of, of dividing itself, uh, enmity. Enmity does not mean preferences. You know, I prefer um, coffee ice cream over vanilla ice cream, but it's okay if it's coffee or vanilla. You know, it's okay. It just means, ugh, ugh. Is it, there's a feeling in the mind of it withdraws when it doesn't like something. There's, much, there's less and less that I'm comfortable watching on TV because, <laughs> because it's all uh, much the news is startling. And on, on either side of the political spectrum, it's um, anguished and it's hard to listen to. I read news, I read it in the newspaper so that I read it at a rate that I can keep my mind open about. But that, that was really important, that what I just said. I want to read something to you. Uh, I have, uh, you can tell me, no, it's not a good way, not in person for you to tell me what you'd like to hear. So I'm going to read you something from Thich Nhat Hanh, something from Howard Thurman, and something from David uh, Radden. So let me try to do that. Joan Halifax is a Zen teacher in uh, uh, Santa Fe, uh, New Mexico. She has a community there and she teaches all over the world. And uh, she, she's talking about her teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh who is still living, but in a very, very end-of-life way. And she talks about meeting Thich Nhat Hanh 
in uh, the time of the Vietnam War. She said uh, she was in New York for a, um, a peace march down Fifth Avenue. Uh, in the midst of this wild uh, psychosocial tangle arrived a young Buddhist monk who traveled from France to the United States to urge our country to stop bombing his country, Vietnam. His name was Thich Nhat Hanh. During his time in New York, he joined a vast peace march down Fifth Avenue, where, I recall, he did something very curious. While thousands pressed forward anxiously and quickly, he walked extremely slowly and mindfully, causing great consternation to the police and to the many people who did not understand what he was doing. This is old Joan Halifax talking. It was at this strange moment that I realized that being a social activist was not necessarily separate from being a contemplative. My mind and my heart changed and my life as well. That day, because of him, many of us opened our lives to the path of socially engaged Buddhism. Thich Nhat Hanh was for me the model of engaged Buddhist, but it was another 20 years before I met him personally. In, his, in the mid-80s, I found myself at his monastery in France, sitting in a small stone building with him and his colleague, Sister Chan Chukong. I vividly remember the meal we shared, white rice and mustard greens. We ate so silently I could hear the inner workings of the clock hanging on the rough plaster wall. I was eating quickly, but then I realized that Tai, as his students affectionately called him, was chewing his rice many times. I slowed down. When I finished my meal, I thought that was that. But Tai looked into my bowl and following his gaze, I realized there were five small grains of rice left in the bottom of the bowl. He looked at me with a straight face and said, you did not finish your rice. It seems that you will be reborn as a duck. I burst out laughing and the merriment on his face and Sister Chan's face lit up that tiny dark room and I became his student. His teaching on social engagement, direct and indirect, will continue with me for the rest of my life. As for being reborn as a duck, I have since that time tried to be scrupulous about finishing my meals. So that's a lovely story, isn't it? I just like that very much. And I like the uh, the visual image of them going down Fifth Avenue, as we often see now parades going down, holding banners. And here he is walking slowly and deliberately. And I thought of it particularly yesterday when I was thinking of the need when my mind is um, uh, demoralized because I have not found a frame large enough to hold what's troubling it comfortably, then what I have to do is not attack the frame, but walk more slowly. So that was the second most important thing I said today. This is Thich Nhat Hanh saying, we need a real awakening, a real enlightenment. New laws and policies are not enough. We need to change our way of thinking and seeing things. This is possible. The truth is that we've not really tried to do it yet. Each of us has to do it for themselves. No one else can do it for you. If you're an activist and you're eager to do something, you should begin with yourself and your own mind. 
my conviction that we cannot change the world if we're not able to change our way of thinking, our own consciousness. Collective change in our way of thinking and seeing things is crucial. We can't expect the world to change without it. Collective awakening is made up of individuals awakening. You have to wake yourself up and then around you, the people have a chance. When we wake up, we suffer less. We can be more helpful. We can help others to help change themselves too. Peace, awakening, enlightenment always begins with you. You are the one you need to count on. On the one hand, we must learn the art of happiness, how to be present in life so we can get the nourishment and the healing we need. On the other hand, we must learn the art of suffering, the way to suffer so we suffer much less and can help others suffer less. It takes courage and love to come back to ourselves and take care of the suffering and the fear and the despair inside. Come back to yourself as a, as a really crucial line be able to take care of yourself. You know, I think about, I think about two things when I think about that. I think about, we're trying so hard to change another person, but what I really need is to change myself in any of those moments. I think back about the part that I read to you about those intuitive vaccine whisperers. I have to become a person who really respects in some way, a person's autonomy in deciding for themselves. And my own fears about, well, what if they make a crazy decision? What if they're, you know? Well, I just remember a story that happened to me a long time ago that makes that point. And I'm trying to think, it was a very crucial moment in my own development, should I tell you that? Yeah, I'll tell you that. 30 or 40 years ago, um, maybe 40 years ago, it's 45 that I've been going on retreats and teaching and sitting on retreat to retreat and retreat and then teaching after that. 40 years ago, I went on retreat and I went in an upset mood. What had happened in the news that week is that some parents in Chicago had decided to take their child who had leukemia for treatments in Mexico because someone had convinced them that uh, an alternative treatment would be a healing for them and that Western medicine didn't get things right. And uh, they took their child against their doctor's advice to Mexico, and he had alternative treatment, and he died. And I was so really unusually wound up about that story. I had four young children of my own at that time. It's a very painful story. And I went off on a retreat to... Uh, to sit just because, not because of my upset mind. It happened that I was going on a retreat and I had an upset mind. And uh, my mind was full of resentment tapes. I was mad at these parents for making that decision. And I was mad at the new age press. And I was mad at the counterculture that said, don't trust Western medicine, take herbs. 
by the way, I'm really tremendously supportive of herb taking and other medicines and uh, not, uh, not disrespectful of Western medicine because amazing things happen. But I was really upset and I went on this retreat and I could not get that tape out of my mind. And I think to myself, goodness, I have a week to sit and I certainly hope I don't spend this whole week going on and on and on about how many people here have said to themselves, I certainly hope I don't think about X during this meditation or Y. I hope this does not come into my mind because if it does, it'll certainly mess it up. You know, may I not think about this or that. So I go off on the retreat and I'm sitting and sometimes I was sitting comfortably and trying to do what the practice was about. And then all of a sudden, I would think about those people and the child. And, I would, and my mind would go off on this little rant about what do they know and they should have listened and that they, they, they childhood leukemia, people don't die from it these days. They have other ways of treating it. And my mind would get all carried away. In that. And after a while, I was really, I thought this whole retreat is going to be a mess because I can't keep my mind off this. But my mind would get all wound up and then I say, okay, we're not doing that. We're just going to breathe and we're going to breathe and relax. I'm going to just count the breaths or whatever it is that I did. But I got wound up in it and then I got unwind myself. I wound up and unwind myself. And days went by and it was honestly a recurrent nightmare. And at one point in the middle of a recurrence, why did they do it? Why did they do it? Terrible parents. I suddenly had a moment of understanding or a moment of insight about how terrible those parents have to be feeling right then and how miserable they must be about having made that decision and how that would plague them their whole life about, you know, on seeing all the other people who had childhood leukemia and didn't die of it. And all of a sudden I had tremendous compassion for these people. And all of a sudden, I had tremendous relief from my mind. So, ah, that is always the response to your mind strung up in really mad, really mad, really mad. I think the world has settled down. I think that people have accepted that uh, all kinds of medicine from wherever its provenance, if it works, it's a, a thing we want to do. And that denigrating anything is not worth, it just stews up the mind and you can't think clearly and make a good, make a good decision. I felt so badly for those parents, really. It's 40 years and I remember I felt badly for them. And I, I, I'm sure they regretted their decision. And it just happened. It's the, it was a zeitgeist. It was a time. We were all kind of excited about what we saw as a new age, which is now an old age, you know. And, um, but I really, I really learned something. I think it's worthwhile that I told you that story because I use it now if I'm really mad at somebody. I, I figure I am missing 
I am missing the byway to compassion if I, if I have put somebody out of my heart. Sometimes it's hard. How can I feel compassion for them? I can feel compassion for all beings. And that's an easier way. Sometimes if the mind feels compassion for enough other beings, it accidentally includes the people that I'm having trouble with. And my mind mellows. Would you find that? Somehow I'm going, to, I'm going to remember to play that a little bit of that chant again and see if it doesn't mellow out your mind. I want to read one more person to you on this general theme. First, I was going to tell you about um, Howard Thurman, uh, who, when he died, was the dean of... Um, he was the Dean Emeritus of March Chapel in Boston University and the Chairman of the Board of Trustees of the Howard Thurman Educational Trust in San Francisco. The book I've been reading is Jesus and the Disinherited and it's sermons from Howard Thurman uh, from 40 years ago. He died, I think, in 1961. Um, It's, it's, I, I, I won't read you that because, well, maybe I will next week because it's lovely. Uh, what I wanted to say is the, the quote from him that says, don't ask about what the world needs. Ask what you need to come alive and then do it because what the world needs is people who have come alive. And I love that. I think to myself, when I was at some point yesterday, over the weekend, I think, uh, distressed about uh, distressed about the hostage taking, among other things, the hostage taking in Texas, and people held hostage all day long. And then I talked to some people about uh, how did they feel about that whole thing, and it evolved, and none of the hostages were hurt. And people were saying, well, it was great because all of the synagogue personnel. Uh, Oh, thanks for putting that in the chat. Uh, all of the synagogue personnel, uh, people have been saying to me, you know, the whole country, all the synagogues and all the JCCs and all the Jewish day schools have all had active shooter training. And the, the, the faculty and the administrators in all the schools know how to respond and how to best deal with uh, uh, intruders and the hostage takers. And I felt so sad about that, that imagine that everybody in our whole country, and certainly in, the, in, in grade schools in the country, that six-year-olds, seven-year-olds are having active shooter drills in their classrooms. That's a terrible thing to have happened. That, and everybody says, what a good thing. Everybody has active shooter drills. It's not a good thing. I never, never passed my mind in grade school that somebody would bust into the classroom and start shooting people. Really, I, 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 I was very hard pressed, this was two days ago, to get my mind past what has happened and it's off and not and the democracy is lost. And I talked to a bunch of friends and they said, well, maybe not yet, you know. 
uh, and maybe there is a next, and uh, it has to start with me, and it has to start with some sort of faith. First of all, I have to fix myself. I can't go out and make any difference until I fix myself. And if I talk to my friends as I talk to you. This is a book called um, A Temporary Affair by David Radden. David Radden is the Ithaca, the uh, Roshi of the Ithaca Zen Center. And uh, this is a, this book is going to come out from some more major mainline press. If you look it up on Amazon, it's probably not there yet. Casual Talks on Zen Practice by David Radden. But I thought I'd read you this. He's talking about what you could do while you're sitting on your Zafu. So if you just sit, if you just sit, and you don't grab onto any of the things that come up and make a big deal out of it, uh, your mind is going to settle down just by itself. He says, that's what Zazen is. And it becomes fluid like a river. And it can just go by, and you can just watch the river go by with all its stuff in it. But he's talking about that's just if you're sitting on your Zafu. Everyday life, he said, is different. Uh, he said, on a Zafu, you don't need to be thinking. You don't need to use your thinking mind. The mind is needed in everyday life to decide how we're going to pay our student loans. Our mind is needed to decide whether we're going to Walmart or Target. The mind is needed to do these things, and we can't just observe it because we're in it. We can't just experience it in a detached mood. Nowadays, instead of letting the mind relax, when people have a free moment, they play with some technology and they do not sink back into themselves. That was the phrase that I was really looking for earlier. They do not sink back into themselves. I think that when we take a moment, as we will in a moment, to sink back into ourselves, then all the chatter seems a little bit further away. Uh, Without sinking back into yourself, you lose track of the fundamental miracle of your existence. You do not appreciate just waking up in the morning. People misuse their minds badly. They get down on themselves, which is one of the strangest things one can do. We divide ourselves into two parts, and one part belittles the other part. No one explains to you how pointless that is. When you judge yourself, when you get down on yourself, it is no different than using your right arm to punch your left arm. The mind is dividing itself into two parts. One is acting and one is judging. And the judge can be pretty severe. Your mind is malfunctioning. And instead of thinking, oh, my mind is malfunctioning, I should allow it to relax. People pay, take a drug or they do something so they can get rid of the tension. Spirituality is cultivating the wisdom of caring for the mind. And if you cannot be forgiving and kind to yourself, you'll never be able to forgive anyone else. If you find something in yourself that is unforgivable, how can you forgive that same quality when it shows up in somebody else? It's impossible. And you will never truly be able to love someone unless you can love yourself. And if you cannot have a sense of humor about what a fool you are, you're misusing your mind. You're using your mind in such a way that produces suffering. That's why a monk once said, the meek shall inherit the earth. He doesn't say what monk, 
But everybody knows that it's Jesus who says that um, uh, the meek shall inherit the earth. You should cultivate meekness. To be meek, to have a humble feeling about yourself, is more precious than a BMW. It will bring you more happiness than a Tesla. To be a peacemaker, you have to be able to make peace with being yourself. It will bring you more happiness than a PhD. To hear a bird and appreciate that you have an organ that can perform this activity gives you greater wealth than trying to find something external to make you happy. Zazen teaches you to learn how to relax and be in this mind that you are experienced. Well, one more. Maybe you're jealous of Jeff Bezos. He's the richest man in the world, which means he can get anything he wants at Amazon. But usually when you get anything you want at Amazon, it's difficult to be happy about a muffin or happy about a bird song. There's no connection between happiness and wealth necessarily. It's good to have enough money to be able to feed yourself, but there is no proving self-worth. You don't ever achieve some level where you say, I've done this and now I am complete. No, you never have that experience except for a passing moment. Your completeness comes from your gentleness. I like that very much. He's, he's about my age, David Radden. I've never met him. I've only read his book. He had a kidney transplant uh, a couple of years ago because he was on the verge of dying that was donated to him by one of the members of his sangha, a younger person. You think of putting a kidney in someone past 80, but people loved him enough to want to do that. I wonder, I'm, I'm going to see about playing this other, um, playing that tape. Would you like to hear six minutes of it, not, or half of it? We'll listen to half of it, and then we'll have time to ask questions, if that's all right with you. Here it is. No, I have to do this back here. Oh, 
from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. From mental suffering, be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all monks in this compound, novice monks, laymen and laywomen disciples. From enmity and danger, be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May our donors of the four supports be free from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. From physical suffering, may they take care of themselves happily. May our guardian devas in this monastery, in this dwelling, in this compound, may the guardian devas. From enmity and danger, be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. May all beings, all breathing things, all creatures. All individuals, all personalities, may all females, all males, all noble ones, all rulings, all deities. All humans, all those in the four woeful planes, be free from enmity and danger. Be free from mental suffering. Be free from physical suffering. May they take care of themselves happily. All beings be free from suffering. May whatever they have gained not be lost. All beings are owners of their karma. In the eastern direction, in the western direction. In the northern direction. In 
the southern direction. In the southeast direction. In the northwest direction. In the northeast direction. In the southwest direction. In the direction below. In the direction above. All beings, all breathing things, all creatures, all individuals, all personalities. May all females, all males. All noble ones, all worldlings, all deities, all humans, all those in the four woeful planes. In the time of, um, in the days following September 11th, uh, in the Calamity with the World Trade Center, um, I had that, I had um, the CD of that chant playing in my car tape recorder and playing in my house as well. And I didn't listen to anything else for days. I went about my business and I did what I had to do. And I taught at Spirit Rock the, on September 12th, actually, um, which was a Wednesday. Um, but I listened to this for, for at least two days, just all the day. And it just did something to me, just keep the mind sort of going along. I would be very interested to hear what you're thinking about this morning, and especially listening to this tape and your response to some of the things that I talked about. So I hope you will use that, um, raise your hand button, the reactions button, and ask a question or make a, make a comment. Kelly. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi, I just wanted to say um, your talk touched me so deeply because I did just complete my, my doctorate. So when you said, even with a PhD, just made me laugh. I told her to please tell you, I my research was in mindfulness-based stress reduction for children with um, diagnosed with ASD in special education apartments. And so I find that I'm called now a year later to work on myself so this has been a real treasure for me this whole entire discussion and I feel um I was outside looking up at the clouds and I just felt the oneness with uh how you listed people from all over the world this is my first spirit rock drop-in and oh. these are some of my thoughts I had today I just am so blessed to be visiting with you both today and everyone 
But oh. the journey continues, even though I finished my doctorate. And it's in clinical psychology. So I just wanted to say, Sylvia, a lot of what you say resonates. Oh, thank you very, very much, Kelly. And may you thrive a lot and and be very helpful to many people in your life. And uh, I'm very glad. Welcome to welcome to the Dharma. Welcome to Spirit. Well, the Dharma you've known before a little bit, but welcome to Spirit Rock and welcome to these classes. And anytime you come back, it'll be great. Thank you. And I had a question for you. Do you have any recommendations? Uh, is it just start coming to classes? I mean, now that I'm, I've been studying for a while, but just kind of I formalized an interest in learning more. Is that just a good way to start? Yes, it's always a good way to start. There are several classes online. Uh, that, have you ever been on retreat? I've been looking for one. I'm in Texas, so it's kind of hard to find. There we go. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I wish yeah. I could zoom over to California. I wish you could too. Um, I wish you could too. And I'm thinking, uh, Take it, take it. Look at all those courses that are online. Uh, there are even there are meditation instructions classes online. I think. Uh, I let me just think of a good answer for you Thank about you. what you can do. Uh, um, I'm doing you, one with Tara and uh, Jack right now, so MBSR. So. Oh, okay. Good, 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 good. Uh, and good luck with your with your work wherever it takes you. That's a great Thank work. You. I appreciate both of you and your wonderful assistant giving me lots of links. Thank you so much for her patience and your kindness. Oh, thank you for saying. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. You're very welcome, Kelly. Thanks for joining us. Thank All you. right. And next, looks like we have a uh, red. I thought it was Tracy looking. Uh, uh, next in line, I see red is at the top. Oh yeah, okay. My 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 computer shuffled the boxes around. So you call on people, Carlita, because my, my boxes shuffled. Okay. No, no worries, I've got you. Okay. I just want to say thank you because I'm in a new job and I'm doing the cheese program. And I walked in two weeks ago and one of the cooks was under a lot of duress because there were so many people out sick. So I just I could tell that he was nervous and I just went and I wrote like, may you be protected. May you live with ease. Um, I don't even remember what the third thing I wrote and I gave it to him. And then like three days later, I walked in and I was twisted and he said, may you live with ease. Uh -huh. and, um, and then I walked in the other day and I saw my writing behind the line. So he put it up on the dupe. So when the dupes come in, it's there. So I just want to say thank you. Um, and Adam Grant is amazing because I was very down one day and he, um, he wrote about, um, grounded hope, uh, versus, you know, um, informed optimism. And if you don't see the possibility, then you can never experience grounded hope and grounded hope feels like a way back into life as opposed to just like. That's so, a wonderful phrase, grounded hope. And I'm 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 very glad you picked it out to say because it's a wonderful you can't you can't even start to have courage unless you have some sort of hope that that possibility. I I, I love that Gil says, let's see what happens next. Every time I would say that to myself, I said, Yes, yes, there's the next, and you don't know, and you are part of the next. That's the big thing. When you spoke to that person the other day, then you were part of 
his next. And that's how it works. Victoria, nice to see you again. Thank you. Thank you, Sylvia. Welcome back. We've missed you. <laughs> um, I'm still basking in the warmth from the, your fabulous New Year's um, ceremony. It was just, uh, as, I, as I think I said then, um, my, my four New Year's resolutions were embodied in the talks of you and your three companions. And it was, it was to me, so synchronistic and fabulous. So I'm still <laughs> totally grateful for that. Um, what I wanted to sort of ask today was about equanimity that um, talking about the news, I lived overseas for 25 years. And so I was very diligent about reading the International Herald Tribune to make sure I knew what was going on because I was living in different countries with different languages. And um, it was sort of my link to the outside world. And, um, but I was suffering from depression and it was nothing seemed to cure it. And it reached a peak when um, I was living in Japan and it turned out I was in living in Japan uh, not when 9-11 happened. Um, so it was, that was a very strange experience, but what, um, even though I wasn't watch, I've never watched the news cause that's always been, well, I never had a television. It's very triggering for me, but, um, even the newspaper, it, I reached the point where I, um, one day it sort of hit me that maybe instead of going into the faculty round and reading the newspaper every morning, I would go to the chapel. I was at a university in Tokyo and practice the organ and learn to play the organ. <laughs> and it was literally just a trade-off because I had limited time in the day. And it's, it was totally amazing. I, I literally was able to overcome what I thought was a permanent clinical depression by, by changing my schedule to do this very, um, you know, to be involved with music and this kind of uplifting activity and also a learning activity, sort of activating my mind and um, and, and, and that I realized then, and, and since then I have to confess, I haven't read the newspaper because I know where it leads for me. But the reason I'm bringing it up, um, today is that I, I have been, um, I was thinking about what you're talking about, about the family with the boy with leukemia. I have been consistently attacked by everyone since that time when I made that decision, people have said, well, that's irresponsible and blah, blah, blah. And um, it's not that I don't know what's going on because you hear it, you know, like, like you said in the beginning of the talk, the good friends, um, good friends, if we have them around us, you know, and like with you, I know what's going on every Wednesday when you're leading because you talk about it. Um, and I feel like I need to put my mind where I can do some good, where I can change something, where I can make a difference. And for me, reading the newspaper is so overwhelming. And 99.999% of the things that I read about, I can do nothing about. Mm -hmm. So um, and in practicing meta, I make it general to include all the people who are sick or who are suffering or the tornadoes or the, you know, anyway, I'm sorry, I'm talking so much, but my question is how to, um, well, first of all, what you think of that and also how to proceed without feeling, I feel very condemned and isolated in my practice. Oh, 
I, I, I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm always happy to hear you, and I'm happy to see you there, Victoria. And uh, I'm always glad for what you say. And um, just as you were talking there, I, I, I was remembering um, the point of view. First of all, I, I, as you said, you talk to your friends. You know what's going on in the world. You vote when there's a, uh, a uh, when there's a, I'm sure you vote when there's a presidential election. That's all you have to do. That when I realized that the only thing I can possibly do is vote. Uh, I can't do anything else. I talk to my friend. I mean, I can't do. I can talk to people, but in in, in these days, I don't go out at all. But I can vote, um, and I can keep my mind and my heart in a fairly good place. So then I can talk to the people that I talk to with a certain amount of hope and spread that around. And I was remembering just yesterday on the on the on on a on a perspective. Oh, good. We have we have time to do this. Good. Um, I remembered a book called Father Joe. I read Father Joe fifteen years ago, probably maybe twenty. It's a long time ago. You can probably find it on uh, uh, on uh, Amazon or Google if you wanted to. Father Joe by Tony uh, Tony Hendra who was the uh, founder of either, I think it was, um, I think it was Mad Magazine. So it's, a, it's an unusual thing, but he went on to be quite well known for founding uh, Mad Magazine. And, uh, uh, and uh, there was something about Father Joe, so to tell it very concisely, Father Joe is telling his own life story of being a, young boy growing up in some northern county of England and being discovered by his father in his middle teens as having a inappropriate love affair with um, an older married woman who was a neighbor or that somehow was in anyway something that the father thought was inappropriate and unacceptable and alarmed about his son's soul doing a thing that he thought was a sin, uh, which is anyway. He takes his son to the south of England to a um, uh, a Benedictine monastery, where the retreat master, the person who's in charge of people who come there, is a man named Father Joe, and uh, this particular and he tells his life story as 40 years of continued contacts with Father Joe over the years, where Father Joe never tells him you did a bad thing, talks to him about things, puts him in another perspective, this kind of whisperer who does, who respects you, a whisperer who talks to you in a way that you can hear it. And I remember being so moved by one particular part, and he comes back over the years, and regardless of what, uh, difficult or not difficult has transpired in his life. The Father Joe has around him such an aura of peace that he said that in talking to him, he had such a aura of peace around him and so much spaciousness about him that somehow my own soul got a chance to breathe. I've just made that up. But it was something like that. That, And one of the things that Father Joe's was true of Father Joe's monastery when you think about where can I find a person like that, is that it was some southern 
tip of England off a promontory that was sticking out into the ocean far from the storm and drang of most daily life. And wars had happened in the many years that Father Joe had his vocation there. And whole wars had started here and ended there and started here and ended here. And the sea kept coming in and going out. And I remember reading and being so uh, uh, soothed by the image of things happen, big worldwide things. In the meantime, the, the, the tide rolls in and rolls out on the southern tip of England. And the abbey stays there and Father Joe remains with his kind heart. And I took it as an image. I actually looked it up yesterday. So how come I remember the name of the author? Um, because I remember feeling soothed by the idea of keeping my own heart, although I can't, in that image of a person that wars and things can happen. And he can relate on a personal and one-to-one -one way with his mind being always in a in a balanced and contented way. And it depends now that I'm saying it to you. I just looked it up yesterday to see where, where did that come from. But I had uh, a, a vicarious kind of equanimity from it. And I realized that it requires the image that everything that's happening, wars and love affairs and this and that, is happening and it's all impermanent. And in the largest scheme of things, the tide is coming in and coming out. And that somewhere in my own self, if I look back on my life, this happened and that happened and this was a big upset and this was a big loss. This is another upset and this is another loss. And the tide has come in and come out and days have come and days have gone. And here I am uh, along in my, in my story, but that there's a way under the storm and drum of contacting a place that is grounded in the awareness that everything comes and goes and you can relax and do things. You don't just let life happen to you. You make decisions, but you don't run the world and the world just happens. And the world just happens. Uh, when on that chant, the singer says, every individual is heir to their own karma, which sounds like it sounds like you get what you deserve or something. And it, it sounds at first listen like a not a kindly thing, like, well, you got yours or whatever. But I think it means the karma of the whole world is impinging on all of us. And, uh, and the line that comes after that, their happiness depends on their own actions. And it's a little bit like David Radden says, if you became... Jeff Bezos tomorrow, or you had this tomorrow, or you had that. It's not going to make you happy. What's going to make you happy is your own awareness of your existence. And it is fantastic to be alive. It's an amazing gift. It could have been otherwise, but it's an amazing gift. We haven't in a long time remembered that the Buddha said, there's a giant turtle that's under all the seas of the world. And this giant, this is a myth associated with the Buddha. The giant turtle swims under all the seas of the world, and there is a, a, a buoy, you know, the kind of thing, a life buoy, one of those round things that a person, you throw it to them if they're drowning. And the, 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 um, every seven years or something, the turtle sticks its head out of the sea, 
and the chances of you being born in a human life are as rare as a turtle sticking its head up through the sea and finding itself with its neck through that. Anyway, the point of that is that a human life is a very rare thing to have. And to realize when you get up in the morning, I'm still here is a big deal. And to realize at any time, I'm still here. And I can still say something or do something. I can say a word of encouragement to people. I can say a word of support. Anyway, but thank you for asking. Thank you for asking. Thank you. And that brings us back to the grounded hope. Thank you. So Tracy. Hi. Hi. Ooh, I got sunshine. I'm in here. There we go. Um, first of all, I just want to say thank you. I've I've um, attended some other Zoom things, Sylvia, that you've done, and um, it almost feels like I'm talking to somebody famous right now. I think I am actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm a therapist here in Philadelphia and a meditation teacher, and done a lot of stuff and retreats and all that. And um, and the I never even I had to look up what en- enmity meant. I never even heard of the word before. So I looked it up and then, and then as you spoke about it and what really struck me was right here at the end when you were talking about the David Radin quote and, um, and how the enmity, enmity that comes up for us in ourselves, in our minds, when we like the thinking, the judging mind there, what I call the critical witness and how until we make peace with that, until we like heal that, we can't, we can't like if someone's loving us at a hundred percent, and we don't yet love ourselves at hundred percent. We can't receive all their love. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, I work with clients, patients, obviously a very full caseload now in these days, thankfully, and also glad to be helping. Um, but I'm thinking like every, you know, we're all, we're, we're constantly judging ourselves. So um, I have so much more to think about with everything that you said. And, and I also lead meditation classes. They're sort of like meditation slash support groups. And I want to bring this in because um, not only in the way of, of with others and, and um, sending it out, but, but the bringing it into ourselves first and, um, and um, like praying to be free of that and, and learning how to be awake to it and recognize it because, you know, I'm, and I see it in myself and all the work I've already done, it's still there. The judging mind, it is still there. And so just, I just wanted to say, thank you. This was really eye opening for me. Oh, you're welcome very much, Ellen. Come again. And uh, uh, I tell well, uh, I tell people all the time that if I find, uh, I, you know, if I do something that I'm not pleased with, I say something that wasn't the best answer, or I do something that's embarrassing or whatever, and, I, and you have kind of a cringe in your mind and I'm about to oh, look, you messed up. I say to myself, sweetheart, you messed up. <laughs> You messed up, sweetheart. Everyone said, well, we messed up. Let's try to do better. Uh, so I wish we'll talk about that. I'm going to write it down to say about, I'll start from sweetheart, you messed up next week. Um, I'll be here next week. That's good. Um, what was I going to say? Next week, also, just a piece, this is a public service. <laughs> it's not a public services announcement. It's an unabashed invitation to hope you join. 
um, oh, a two-day workshop next, not this Friday and Saturday, the following Friday and Saturday, Friday night and Saturday in the day. I am teaching with um, Sharon Salzberg, the second of two day-long classes we did uh, some of the paramitas, the, the um, I don't even remember which ones last time, the different elements of a loving heart. Uh, we did three of them sometime in, in autumn. Uh, and now we are doing the spring ones, and that's next Thursday. And it's not on Spirit Rock, it's on uh, IMS, on the Insight Meditation Service Center. So if you, Insight Meditation Society, IMS, if you look up IMS, Insight Meditation Society, you will see Sylvia Boerstein and Sharon Salzberg are teaching next Friday and Saturday. If you can't come at that time, it's always a thing that you can uh, download later, download and listen to later. So, uh, oh, there, Carlita has put it up. That's great. Thank you. And um, Sharon is my meta teacher, so it'll be fun to see the both of us together. And it's fun for us to teach together. Okay, I want to try to do three questions in six minutes. Let's see. Rosie. Hi, you know, I, this is a very dark thing that, you know, I hesitate to bring up, you know, to the group. And, but then, you know, I hear you saying, um, it's good to talk to your friends. And so I'm going to push forward here and just say that um, a very, very shocking and sad, you know, you talk about the world and things happen in it and you know how your mind was so disturbed by the parents who made that choice um and then you broke through to compassion for them and then um last thursday um i was a preschool teacher for 29 years and two of the children in my class are siblings of someone who last thursday who you know, I knew she was a part of our school family group, was murdered. And um, she's a young woman who graduated recently from college and, you know, had her whole life ahead of her and was um, just working in a store. She's becoming a designer, and someone came in, and uh, she was alone in the store. She sent a text saying to a friend saying, I'm getting a bad feeling from this person in the store and he stabbed her to death. And uh, so all of my friends that I would have been talking to are all completely blown apart. And, you know, people are just um, a mess and upset. And so I'm just trying to um, be grounded. I know, you know, all those feelings that you had of anger towards those parents or, you know, that comes right up. And then, but under anger, you know, I know is just a tremendous sadness. I don't, I really, I always, when anger comes up, I always look and, you know, there's just a huge sadness there. And, but, um, you know, and then you feel, well, I need, you know, not I need to, but 
can I find, or is there in me compassion for the person who killed her, you know, and what a lost soul that person is and how distressed and off and suffering they are. And so anyway, that's the big, you know, first of all, I'm so, so sorry. I'm so, so sorry that that happened. And I am, um, I'm I'm touched that you brought it up with that with this group and that uh, which means to me that you've sort of accepted us as your friends and that uh, uh, and the, as uh, as um, potential holders of your grief, you know that I think that uh, when things happen, it's one thing that. Uh, Things happen if, if um, even if a thing doesn't have a cause, if there wasn't a person who stabbed, if there was a tsunami and a person gets drowned and taken out to sea, or an earthquake and a person gets killed, even if there's not someone who caused it, uh, when someone who we know or care about or act by a significant part in our cognizance, something happens to them, uh, we feel really terribly sad. And the, and the terrible sadness is like, um, I think it's like a trauma to the mind. And it can't hold itself up for a while. You know, when you hear the news that someone has died, it's like this woman died. Um, it would be also terrible if she had died in an earthquake or in something else. Um, I, I, I actually noticed that there wasn't so much anger as was grief in what you said, that you know, somebody who's deranged does a thing like that. And that's it's really... I'm. I'm uh, uh, I, I do think that it's our friends that hold us up in time like that because we can't hold up. We need somebody else to hold us up for some period of time. That's why there are morning rituals. That's why we come together in groups and stay with people when we're... Because there's nothing you can say. It, it's, a, it's like getting hit by a truck or something and you didn't die. And you didn't even break bones, but your whole body is shook up. It's like the mind can't believe it. You can't believe it. How could that happen? Uh, and normally, um, normally I don't say very much to people that are uh, stricken in that kind of a way. I think the best you can do is uh, with the people who are still alive, sit next to them, hold their hand, be quiet. There isn't anything you can say, really. Most of what we say is I think to myself, um, I think all the thoughts that you think to yourself, but there really isn't anything to say. The grief of losing somebody, I think it's the under I think it's the underneath um, motivator of our lives. Our biggest worry is that someone dear from uh, dear to us will suddenly not be here anymore, or not suddenly, but over some time. However, we lose somebody, 
that the possibility of losing somebody is a grief that we have in advance of it happening. And it's an underlying thing. When we leave some, when we leave some place, I realized the other day leaving some place, actually my family was living, was leaving, visiting me. And I said, okay, drive carefully. My family are grown people. They're all in their sixties. I mean, they know how to drive. So why do we say drive carefully? Like it's, it's like a ritual. Of course they're going to drive carefully, you know, but we say it because they're about to be going away from you. I, re- I remember, it's not, it's not where, it's, when you say goodbye, it means God be with you until we meet again. We have that underlying understanding that every parting could be something else. I think of that sometime. I, I think about it all the time when somebody in my family flies off to some different place where they're living, but I could lose them living next door. But the the worry about losing people is like the saddest thing. And I think it underlies. And I think in a, in a, in a certain undercurrent, subtle way, it's what animates the possibility of, of um, compassion in us. That it could be me that's in this pain, kind of pain. You know, here it is, it's happened to, well, you are in this pain, but this person's children are in pain, the, the proximal people are in pain. And if I look around, you see everybody is walking around with the pain of having lost somebody. But we've all lost somebody, but not yesterday, or not the day before. And remember that, I think when we realize that, um, I don't want to talk in terms of the Buddha said, but the Buddha said, everyone who understands impermanence, ceases to be contentious. That everybody's life is a um, is a time-limited gift. And to not spend any of that gift time fighting with people or being contentious with them, because life is a, is a, is a precious and temporal thing. If we realize that every time we say goodbye to somebody, that we might not see them again. We would just be all kinder and sweeter to each other. We'd have a different world. I'm so sorry that that happened, Rosie. And I hope that bringing it up with the group supported you. Absolutely, yes. Thank you so much, Sylvia. That's why I brought it up. You're so wise and, you know, and that's the bottom line is impermanence and how, you know, it can be how we know it in our mind, everything's impermanent, but that it can just shock us, you know, that the reality of it, you know, so thank you very much. Well, thank you. And thank everyone in the group. I really, I do think of you all as friends and a family and a community. So it's really, thank you. So do I think of you as friends and community. So listen, it's it's 12 o'clock, then Marty and Barbara did not ask their questions. Can I ask you a question? Are you going to be here next week? So, So you'll ask the question next week. There you go. And really, for all of you, look all on your screen. Look at the people. 
and um, we just talk about parting. Parting, we'll look forward to seeing each other soon and uh, drive carefully and stay well and be well. May all beings be peaceful and come to the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.